All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, welcome back. So last episode, we talked about the current financial crisis that we're in, the things that the Fed can do, the thing that the Fed should do, and what we can do with respect to making sure that we can take control of our own economic futures. Now, in this episode, we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're going to talk about whether or not the United States can turn what appears to be economic catastrophe into enormous economic opportunity for the country and really for the world. All of that and more coming up on this episode. Welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate you joining us. I want to let everyone know that in the description of this podcast is a link that you can use to join our volley chat. There you can give us episode ideas, you know, tell us about different guests that you may want to see on the podcast. And we, I appreciate one of our me members, David M., for recommending a guest that Nick and I had talked about and think we're going to make happen here very soon. But go to the description, click that link, join us there, tell us your thoughts on the podcast, this episode. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy. All right. So with you as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, is not here today, but we do have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian. Hey. As well as our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Good afternoon, Nick. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of lay out the groundwork for where the current ec like global economic situation is, right? That's obviously a pretty big task, but we're going to do the best we can with some of the major players. And we're going to talk about potential opportunities that the United States has. So stick with us as we kind of run you through the, the like laying down the groundwork for the current situation. And we're going to get to the, the very specific ways that the United States could actually take advantage of this. And I don't mean take advantage in a, in a pejorative way. I just mean there's an opportunity where while at the same time the United States is taking care of itself, it could also be taking care of our, our allies and really the world. But we've got to play our cards right. So let's look at where we're currently at. Here's the situation on the ground. When you look at the global economy, obviously trade is a major component to this because some countries are good at producing some things and they're not good at producing others. Some countries have access to certain resources. They don't have access to others. So rather than demanding your economy only be organized based off of what you can produce or what resources you have, we engage in trade, right? And that trade is based off of something called comparative advantage, which we're going to get into a little bit later. But I want to talk about what we all kind of understand is going on right now. Obviously, energy is a huge issue, right? Energy and food are huge issues right now. Why is that? Well, when you look at Europe uh, and when you look at the Middle East, Africa, especially those areas, a lot of their dependency on food, agricultural products, comes from the EU, it also comes from Russia, and it comes from Ukraine. Well, obviously, based off of this war that's going on in Ukraine right now, that is significantly shutting down the capacity for Russian agricultural products and Ukrainian ag agricultural products, especially wheat in Ukraine and some other things, to be able to get to the market. But on top of that, the EU is also heavily dependent on oil and natural gas from Russia. In fact, it was kind of interesting. Donald Trump brought this up at the United Nations, and there was this there was this clip, and they were showing the German delegation sitting there shaking their heads, like being really condescending, as, as Trump was saying, the EU and Germany has essentially made themselves way too dependent 
on dictators for their energy. Oh, and it was American media, too, that was like yeah. running with it and being like, ha ha, look at all these intelligent world leaders that are mocking the American <laughs> president. And and this was like in 2018. And then fast forward just a few years later, and it was like, look who's laughing now. Yeah. So so Europe finds himself in a, in a bad situation, especially with respect to oil and gas, right? Europe is actually a big producer of agricultural products and food, but they're, they're really, you know, their economies are, are, are dependent uh, or, you know, and by dependent, I don't mean like that's the only place they can get oil. I just mean that their current arrangement has been really dependent on Russia for oil and natural gas. And now they can't have that anymore because of sanctions, because of you know the you know, pipelines blowing up, things of that nature. Other countries in the world are especially dependent on Russia and the Ukraine, especially the Ukraine for wheat imports. So there's going to be other areas of, of the world that are, are heavily dependent on that that are not getting that. So that's creating one problem. Um now let's look at China. So that's Russia and Ukraine, right? Russia and Ukraine and how their products affect the global economy. Then you have China. So China is a big producer of agricultural products, but their ag agricultural products are usually used for themselves, right? It's, for, it's to feed their own population. On top of that, China has been a major investor in infrastructure in the developing world. So Africa, especially China's poured a lot of money into that other places as well, where they've, they've gone in and they basically upfront the cost for port projects, infrastructure projects, um, mining capacity and things like that. And these, they've essentially, you know, gotten in through throwing all this money at it through inflating their own currency, right. Then throwing their money at it and then using also the, the money that they've gained through exports to be able to do all of this. And now they're in a position where a lot of African countries, and Sri Lanka is another example of this, where they've they've realized that they've signed on to some pretty bad deals with China, where China is now essentially confiscating infrastructure products that it's done, or it's demanding compensation and raw materials. So that's created a big problem with respect to you know China's um, China's economic and and political arrangements with these other countries that are now starting to sour, and it's souring at the same time that. China's chickens are coming home to roost with their own financial problems. There is a huge housing bubble in China. There is demographic problems in China with respect to their birth rates. There's huge problems in China with respect to their in inflationary monetary policy. Like if you think inflation is bad in the United States and you think that, you know, we, we've gone through some problems here, it's even worse in China in many respects. So they're, they're at a point where they've been spending the credit card essentially um, so they've experienced economic growth, but their overall spending and the way that they've achieved some of that economic growth ha has not been the most sound. And so now they're on the verge of major problems right now where they're not going to be able to invest the same capital overseas. Um, and they're dealing with problems at home that are, are really going to start to you know, manifest, themselves, manifest themselves in ways that's, that's going to be detrimental to the regime. And the regime is probably if history is any guide here, the regime uh, and the Communist Chi Party of China is probably going to resort to a lot more militant cracking down on its own population, intimidating its neighbors. This is also why nature. they're being so belligerent towards Taiwan, more than usual. I mean, they're usually belligerent, right? But but they're a lot more belligerent in large part because of some of these problems domestically. Yeah. China likes to project this like view that we're very strong and we're an emerging superpower and a lot of Americans admittedly buy into it. Oh yeah. And yeah. but but no there's definitely something to be said about how things are not quite as they seem under the surface or under the hood. And and I what I what I think you're getting at here is that all of these major world economies or potential competitors or not necessarily competitors in some cases, like the EU is not a competitor, right? But, but, but all of these, these major world economies have serious systemic problems right now that despite all of the problems the U.S. has, some of these other major economies have way worse issues that they're tackling right now. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, again, so that's Russia, Ukraine, that's China. And then to your point, let's go to the EU next. Where's the EU at? Well, the EU has serious currency problems because they're not just dealing, they've got the Euro, but keep in mind, it's not just, you know, in the United States, we handle our monetary policy in great Britain. They handle their monetary policy in China. They handle their monetary policy in the EU. Yeah. They've got the Euro, but you've got several different countries which are engaging in yeah. very, very different spending quotas and debt issues. And that all has, an impact on the euro. And they don't have control over their own currency like we do. Italy yeah. does not get to choose to 
simply mint more euros in order to fund their government deficit. Yeah. They, they don't have they don't have any control over their monetary policy. Basically, it's the Germans that control uh, the the eurozone because they're the largest economy. You could also argue maybe the French because they're the second largest, but those two together really get to determine monetary policy in the European Union. But it's actually worse than that. It's not just that some of these European countries don't have control over their monetary policy. It's that they're making bad monetary decisions to people who do have control yes. over the monetary policy. Yeah. Because even though the UK is not part of the European Union and doesn't use the euro, they're making horrible monetary choices right now. They're turning the money printers on yeah. while they're raising interest rates, yeah. which I, I've said before, that is the equivalent of you running the AC and the heater at the same time. <laughs> yeah. No, and and the, the European Central Bank is doing the exact same thing. They're 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 printing money in order to engage in debt monetization to bail out their their bond markets. Well, and the and the other big thing that the EU has really screwed up, and our major players within the EU have really screwed up on, like especially like Germany, has been this idea that they essentially handed over their energy policy to an, an angry yes. Swedish teenager, and so now they find themselves in a situation where it turns out. Trump was correct about their situation, that they were overly dependent on dictatorial nations like Russia, right? They wanted to sit there and talk smack, but now they're in a position where, oh, it turns out your your windmills and your solar panels are not going to make up for the energy policy when winter hits in northern Germany. No kidding, right? So Can I also add that because of the horrible energy policies, I mean, basically the Green New Deal people took over European policy decision-making when it came to the energy sector yeah. like 10 years ago yeah. or at least five years ago. And now we're reaping the benefits or consequences of said policy decisions. And it's not just that, oh, they made some bad decisions and now energy is going through the roof. It's the fact that a lot of these governments, including the UK, are having to subsidize the consequences of those energy policies in the form of either more government payments in order to to meet that gap between you know people's energy bills they're trying to cap energy bills is what yeah. i'm trying to say and the only people that are paying the difference there is the government itself well how are they paying for it through more government printing yeah. which then gets back into the monetary side so it's an it, it's becoming basically an endless doom loop yes. where the government is having to print money to pay the costs of bad government decision making on the fiscal side yeah which is then leading to poor economic growth, which is requiring more money printing. It, 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 it's creating this endless cycle, which again is part of the reason that um, the dollar is soaring in comparison to the euro well, and, and the pound and, right and now. And keep in mind, keep in mind, these are all experts, right? Like I, I get so frustrated with this idea. Well, are you an are you an expert in economics? No, but you know what I am literate. <laughs> I, I can read and I can I can do I can conduct like. Basic arguments using logic and rationality. And, and I do know this much. Again, governments get their money through taxing. They get their money through borrowing. And they get their money through printing. And if you've set up an energy policy where now your elderly people are going to die because they're cold in the mountains and you can no longer get the oil and natural gas you need from the country that you have sanctions on because they invaded a neighbor, you're going to have to make up the difference. If you're going to try to like cap the prices so that people can afford it, well, okay, now you're going to have shortages, so you're going to have rationing. Well, now who gets to decide who gets to use the heat? And if you need to actually spend more money in order to do it and you can't tax it because people are taxed to death and you can't borrow it because no one's eager to borrow, lend you money right now because everyone's found themselves in the situation. You have to print it. Then you have to print it. And you're going to print it because one, it's your only option. And two, because it's the easiest to hide from your people because you're not directly taking money from them. Uh, it's not the easy problem, to hide anymore though. But the problem is, it, it is the easiest when you're, if I got to go to a person right now and say, hey, the government's going to print more money or the government's going to tax you more, I guarantee you the electorate is going to have a lot more to say about you coming in and taxing them, even though inflation is a tax, but it's a hidden tax, right? They don't know. Yes. Sure. But, but th th this reminds me of the famous Thomas Sowell quote that when the people demand the impossible, yes. only liars can suffice because yeah. what you have right now in Europe, and this is actually going to lead to a question that I've got for you. What you have in Europe is basically people are demanding price caps for yes. energy while they're demanding the green new deal yeah. and they're demanding their sta you know, standard they, of living been, being they've held been told, up. They've been told you can have it all if you just elect the right people. Yes. No, you can't. You can't have things that are diametrically opposed to one another. You can't have things that are inherently contradictory, 
Like if you want one thing, it's going to cause suffering in another area. And in this case, what we're finding now is it's going to cause a lot of suffering. And and the problem is, is the government is keeps telling these people, no, 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 it, it's not our it's not our green policy. It, it's all Russia's fault. Okay, let's say it's all Russia's fault, or it's the evil, greedy oil right. and gas sure. companies. It, it's all yeah. Russia's fault. It's all. But here's my question: How are you going to heat your house in the winter time? Right, like go ahead and go ahead and blame whoever you want, but I want to know how you're going to heat your house in the winter time because most Americans are not worried about it, but you guys are. So why is that? Is it because there was no alternative, or it's because you made certain decisions, and now that there's consequences for those actions? You don't want to own up to it. Or you want to say, well, who could have foreseen this? Yeah, gosh, who could have foreseen Putin, a guy that has like continually gone in and invaded neighbors and saber rattled? Who could have foreseen him going after the Ukraine when he's already gone after the Ukraine before? <laughs> he did this before. That's the funny thing is that it was so like we don't receive, you know, the, the general public doesn't receive like any of these intelligence reports or anything like yeah. that, right? So like we have a fraction of the amount of information that these great experts and world leaders have. And yet so many people saw, you know, Russia is not a reliable trade partner. Maybe we shouldn't make ourselves, again, going back to, to the thing yeah. with Trump, he pointed out like five years ago yeah. that maybe the European Union should not be dependent wholly on Russian energy in order to fuel its economy. Yeah. And then these people laughed to him laughed at him and mocked him. And then they decided to get their energy policy from a Swedish teenager in yeah. high school. And, and now that the winter is coming, they're wondering, <laughs> Whoa, why is energy? Why, why is my energy bill the same equivalent as my rent? Did you honestly just try to throw in a game of Thrones reference there? Winter is coming. Well, I meant it in more <laughs> ways than one, but, but well, let's, let's go to our, let's go to the, our last the, one. The question please. that I've got for you is you've really described, you basically took my role here and you described like, you know, all these countries are doomed. Their economies are in shambles. So what? I, I know that you're not ending there, though. No, you're pointing I got out that, one that, more place to go to. Yeah, but I have a feeling that you've already covered the developed world, right? You, you yeah. talked about China yeah. and you talked we, about we the hit Russia, Union. Ukraine, China, EU. And now I'm going to I mean, we could we could go into stuff with the rest of Asia and South America. But again, we, this is not a two hour podcast. Let me let me hit this last one. And then okay. we'll kind of do a wrap up. The last one is that I want to talk about is Africa, because Africa is more dependent on the, the EU for trade um, than say other places in the world. But, and, and a lot of that has to do with in investment infrastructure uh, spending. It has to do with food imports in, in a lot of these places. Um, and then what is, what does Africa have in, in They are abundant in natural resources. Yeah. So when it comes to diamonds, when it comes to copper, when it comes to cobalt, when it comes to rare earth minerals, Africa has got a, a ton of it. And, and largely what's happened over the last several decades is Europe in many ways retreated from Africa. Um, and, and some of that was due to the end of the colonialism and whatnot. And, and um, you know, and again, some of that was, was very appropriate that they retreated because I, I believe in self-determination for these countries. The problem was China somebody else came in. <laughs> China backfilled it and said, okay, here's, here's a bunch of money. Here's a bunch of infrastructure. Here's a bunch. And, and again, like I said, they, they set up these deals with a lot of African nations that, that, are not working well for Africa. They're very one-sided. Turns out the only people that it really worked for was, um, you know, China, and in some case, some of the other uh, partners that they have, and, and some of those are European when it comes to the, some of the mining and whatnot. But so that's where we're at. Quick overview: Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine was a big supplier of agricultural products. Russia and um, Russia was a big supplier of not only agricultural products but oil and natural gas. Okay, they're at war. They can't get as much of their stuff to market, or they're deliberately not sending their stuff to market because they want to punish the EU. China's on a, on the verge of recognizing their own economic woes with respect to their monetary policy, with respect to malinvestment, building mega cities that nobody is in. They have wasted a ton of their resources through central planning. And now they're starting to saber rattle and they're starting to resort to intimidation in order to try to maintain their, their prominence on the economic and world stage. The EU finds themselves in a position where they were overly dependent on Russia for their energy needs and their competitive advantage within trade is they've been good on the financial side. They've been good on the tech sector. They've been good on uh, manufacturing in some respects. The problem is, is that it's hard to do any of that if you don't have, if you can't keep the power on. And yeah. whereas, whereas and they're, they're extremely over leveraged, yes. too, heavily in debt. So they're big over leveraged, they're big in debt. They've had really bad monetary policy. They have poured billions of dollars into government uh, boondoggles, especially with respect to energy policy. And it's not keeping up with the capacity they need. 
Um, not to mention the fact that EU is also signed on. It's not just their energy policy. It's their overall environmental policy. Because the Netherlands, the, 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 the second, third, and fourth largest agricultural exporters in the world are the Netherlands, Germany, and France. And all of them are signing on to these environmental policies where now close to 33% of farms in the Netherlands are going to have to shut down in order to meet their environmental goals with respect to nitrates in the soil. And, and ne the Netherlands are small. Oh, the they're tiny, 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 smaller than New Jersey, right? So we're at a point right now where think about it. They are already hurting, you know, some countries, not, not so much in Europe, but some countries are hurting from a, a lack of wheat exports from Ukraine. All of EU is hurting for a lack of oil and natural gas um, exports from Russia. At the same time that's going on, Europe is signing on to environmental programs, which is curtailing their own agricultural productive capacity. Okay, that's going on in the EU. And then when you look down at what's going on in Africa right now, who is more dependent on, on a lot of trade from that region, whether it be um, energy or whether it be agricultural products. And they've signed all these bad deals with China right now that is allowing China to essentially exploit raw materials without actually engaging in any sort of development of the local economy. Right. This is this is one of the reasons why you see countries um, like the Congo that are starting to say, OK, great, we want to sell our resources, but we also want to be we also want to get in on the concentration on the refinery. We want to get on the actually producing something, not just selling raw materials. Yeah. Right. And that makes that makes perfect sense for them. Right. But China doesn't want that. China wants to own the refining capacity. So. We find ourselves in a situation where the entire world, <laughs> where the entire world is in, in is in a spot where the competitive advantages for what they typically do is shifting. Now, here's the question: if the major if the major issues at play here have to do with things like agricultural production, food shortages, and energy, so it's oil, natural gas, coal, things of that nature. The real the real question becomes like, okay. How is the United States now positioned in order to compete in a world where this is the new competitive landscape? That was uh, that, that was similar to what I was going to ask earlier, which was like, okay, you've laid out why there's problems in Asia, Africa, and Europe. Yeah. So what makes us in a better position than them? Because as, as pretty much, I think close to a hundred percent of our viewers would agree that like, we've got some major problems yes, too. Yes, we do. But it sounds like that the rest of the world in some ways has worse problems yes, and, or that our problems are entirely self-inflicted, whereas their problems, even in Europe's case, some of their problems, most of their problems are self-inflicted in Europe, but not all of them, right? They can't yeah. control what Russia does, right? Um, you could argue Russia's problems are self-inflicted because they willingly chose to go into a war, right? But, but it sounds like that the United States, A – is despite all our problems actually in a better position comparatively versus the rest of the world? And B, even with our problems, they are at least self-inflicted problems. Yeah, I, I would say we're we're all we're looking at a situation where everybody's worse off. Um, but the the question really is is that okay if everybody's worse off, to what degree mm -hmm. and to what degree with respect to competitive advantage? Yeah, right. So. Again, the, the whole idea of competitive advantage, and this is important for, for everyone to understand, all that means is essentially specialization and division of labor. So I could go home right now and say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to be dependent on anyone. I'm going to be totally self-sufficient. And I go can, full North Korea. I can theoretically do that, right? <laughs> like I've got 10 acres, I've got a creek. But here's what that would mean. It would mean my clothes would be crappy. It would mean my vehicles would probably break down at some point and I wouldn't be able to use them to, to the same degree that I could otherwise. It means that, yeah, I can grow my own food, but I'm going to be really, really limited on the, on the scope of food and the diversity of food that I actually have. So I, I could do it, but the question is, is would I be better off as a result? And the answer most of us come to is no. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't do stuff to try to increase their self-sufficiency or majorly their lack of dependency. Which you are doing. Yeah, on sources that they don't think are as reliable or that they don't like as much because they don't like the chemicals or whatever. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. But when I'm talking about the, the brilliance of free market economics and trade has always rested on the idea that it is better for me to do something I am really good at, create abundance and surplus, and then sell that surplus than it is for me to try to be really good at a number of things I'm no good at, right? So you're really good at producing the clothes. I'm really good at producing, you know, you know, whatever it is, 
uh, raising livestock, or I'm really good at being an accountant, or I'm really good at, at being a mechanic. It makes more sense for me to focus on being the best mechanic, and then you bring your stuff to me and I work on it, because I'm going to be able to give you a better rate. Like you're, you're actually going to get it a better product for cheaper, and that I'm going to get, and I'm going to be more wealthy too because I'm able to specialize on something I'm really good at. So what it does is it takes the inefficiency out of the economy by engaging in trade with respect to competitive advantage. Now, if you find yourself in a situation where all of a sudden, yes, you've engaged in inflationary monetary policy, but it's not as bad for you as it is for everybody else. What does that mean? Well, it means your currency stronger. It means that you can actually buy up the wealth and resources in other places and people really can't buy it up from you. Okay. What about uh, food production? Okay. Maybe China produces more food, but they actually need it for their own consumption and you're a net exporter. Well, if now the other countries that you were competing with, the Netherlands, Germany, France, et cetera, if all of a sudden they're not the same exporter because their own internal environmental policies actually make it harder for them to produce, or as a result of war, and now they don't have the same access to energy, which means their gas prices go up. And here's, here's the thing you gotta understand. If your gas prices are going up and your natural gas prices are going up, that means you can't fuel the implements you need to produce the same amount of agricultural output which means your, your, the price of the stuff you're selling on the open market just became more expensive compared to ours, right? What about oil and gas? Okay, well, look, the bottom line is, yeah, England has a source of gas. Norway has a source of oil, right? But Germany and France and some of these other countries, this is one of the reasons why France has actually been smart in investing in nuclear because they, yeah. they do have energy output that actually makes sense and that they can sustain, the, the problem is, is that if you need more of that oil and gas, well, okay, where can you get it? Well, you can try to get it from Saudi Arabia. You can try to get it from Russia. You can try to get it from Venezuela, which is what Biden is now you know, making overtures for. Well, the United States has the capacity. We're, we're actually the largest oil producer in the world. Really? Yes. Or, <laughs> well, we, we could be. Well, if Biden's so it, policies it, it, ended up getting reversed. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, before we go in, so before I get ahead of myself, the whole point of this, because we're going to lay out where, where the United States actually yeah. stands, and I'm going to show you the stats. Okay. I'm going to show you the stats for where we're at. But the reason why I want to talk about competitive advantage is I wanted to show you this is what the world needs. This is where they used to get it. This is why they're having trouble getting it there. Yeah. And this is why the United States is now poised in a position to be able to take advantage. And again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, like, oh, we're exploiting these people. No, we're not. They chose, yeah, they made a lot yeah. of these decisions. It was bad decisions. People still need the gas. They still need the and, oil. And they still need the food. It sounds like you're trying to say that despite all of the problems in America, we are in a position to come back in a major way Yes, under certain circumstances. Because we're not as, the, the war in Ukraine, while it still affects us, doesn't affect us anywhere near to the degree it affects the EU. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. While, you know, some of these other problems that we see still affect us, it doesn't affect us nearly to the degree that it's affecting these other people operating within the marketplace. So the first one I want to talk about is food production. So if you, if you look at our screen right here, this is kind of old, this comes from 2018, but it gives you an, it gives you an idea because not a lot of this has shifted so much that, you know, it's not going to make any sense. So we're, we're the largest producer of corn in the, in the United States is the largest producer of corn within the world. And the reason why that's, that's meaningful is not just because people eat corn. It's because, a lot of your livestock across the world is actually supplemented through corn. Yeah, it's a staple crop. Yeah, it's a staple crop. Um, the other thing that we actually uh, produce, the largest producer is soy, which it has become more of a, a staple for a lot of other things that we produce. And again, not just for human consumption, but also for uh, animal consumption as well. Mm -hmm. We're the fourth largest producer in wheat behind China, India, and Russia. Now, once again, think about that. China produces the wheat for its own consumption. India probably India well. produces the wheat for its own consumption. A lot of the consumption that you see over there in wheat is, is done by smaller farmers that is sown locally or, or is sold locally. Russia produces a lot of wheat, but the problem now is that they can't get it to market like they mm. could before. Okay. Then we're the, uh, we're the third largest in sugar beets behind who Russia and France. Again, Russia can't get it out there. France has a problem right now, too, because they're falling in within some of the some environmental uh, problems. We're the 10th world producer of sugarcane. We're the fifth largest producer of potatoes behind who? China, India, Russia, and Ukraine. So all the people that are competing with us in this particular market, 
either have their either using it for their own consumption and they're not exporting it, or they've been closed off to the marketplace because of war. Third largest producer of cotton behind who? China and India. We're the twelfth largest producer of rice. I don't think most people would have expected that. Um, we're the third largest producer of grapes. We're the fourth largest producer of uh, oranges. Again, behind who? Brazil, China, and India. Again, China and India are doing this for their own consumption. All right, and you can you can go down this with apples, with onions, with peanuts. What you're gonna what you're gonna see? We in make a lot every of category. food products. Yeah, what you're gonna see in almost every single category is. The United States is at the is like within the top ten of producers of just about every major agricultural product, and the people that were usually behind in in a particular field, China, India, Russia, occasionally Brazil, yeah, and occasionally Brazil. So, what you have is these are all products that are essential to to the world for both human consumption and for animal consumption, for raising livestock. And the United States is a major leader in our competitor in the, in the actual production, and our competitors are primarily using it for their own consumption. So this begs the question. All right, let's go to um, let's go to the next uh, thing here. I want to show. Okay, this is really important to understand from a competitive advantage side. So the United States is ranked third. This is in 2020 now, third in agri agricultural output at 307.4 billion. All right, 306.4 billion of which was food, despite employing a small fraction of the agricultural workforce of China and India. So, and our, our top five are corn, soybeans, dairy, wheat, and sugarcane were the top five U.S. agricultural commodities by value of the same year. This is all 2020. Here's what's important to understand about this. When it talks about despite employing a small fraction of the agricultural workforce of China and India, what that means is, is that our agricultural production is significantly more efficient than it is in China and India. Yeah. A lot of them are subsistence farmers. That's exactly what you have in what, China. What do you mean by that? Uh, basically you're just farming to feed yourself. You're farming okay. to feed yourself. Maybe you're, you're farming to, you know, you have some surplus that you can sell on local marketplaces, but you're not shipping. You're not shipping your products overseas. So what it is, is that, we have a relatively small portion of the population in the United States. I think it's like under 3% of the population. It might be even less. I think it's less than that now. So it's a fraction of the population, which is responsible for feeding not only most of the United States, but a, a fair size of the world as well. So the amount of money that we put into growing something is far less than what you know China or India might be doing. And it and allows us to have a great deal more surplus. So that gives us a large competitive advantage on the world market with this stuff. Um, now, again, if you want to look at, th this is where we're talking about overall output. When you actually flip the question, um, I'm going to bring this up here just on my computer screen real quick. When you actually flip the question, you start asking questions about exporters. So which countries are the largest exporters in food products? The United States is first. Our exports are one, uh, 118 uh, billion. The next closest is the Netherlands at 79 billion. Wow. Right? But what is the Netherlands doing to their own export? Because of their own policies that they've chosen to adopt, 33% of farms in the Netherlands are potentially going to be shut down in order to meet their environmental goals. Right? So that's the second largest uh, export of the Netherlands. After that, it's Germany at 70 billion, then France at 68 billion, then Brazil at 55 billion. So, you know, what do we find through all of this? A lot of our biggest competitors in these fields have either adopted policies, which are needlessly restricting their ability to engage in agricultural output, the same level of agricultural output for the same price, or they're suffering under a lack of, of like soaring uh, fuel costs, which are going to necessarily increase the cost of their goods compared to ours on the world market. Now, the, the one thing that we can talk about here that they, they do have some advantage with respect to international trade is the transportation costs to get a, a German, you know, German wheat to the European market or to the Middle Eastern market or yeah, to the Asian market. Yeah, it's a lot lower than us. Is, is potentially lower than us in some respects. However, when it comes to Asian markets, it's actually far cheaper to ship something in large container ships than it is to transport it over land. Yep. The sea is free. 
So we're in a position right now where, again, even though it seems like, well, gosh, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cheaper for you know Germany or France or the Netherlands to get their products uh, to the African market than it would be the United States? The answer is not necessarily, because they're going to have to ship it from their ports in the Netherlands all the way around, uh, and then get it over to Africa, and we can take it from our ports in Virginia and South Carolina and whatnot, and we can we can ship it there as well, especially when again they are. They are doing their own restrictions, which is going to cause the price of their goods to go yeah, that, up. That is really the thing that I, I think we need to emphasize here in this episode is that a lot of these problems that countries like Europe are facing are self-inflicted. They have willingly chosen to make it more expensive for yeah. them to grow food. They've willingly chosen to make it more expensive for you, them to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. But the concern that I think a lot of people listening to this show would have is, is okay, that's great, but we're moving in that direction ourselves. Yeah. There's an entire political party in the U S whose mission it seems to be is, you know what? We should just make ourselves more like Europe yes. in every single way. We should make ourselves as poor as them. We should have their, their level of inflation. We should have all their restrictions on the economy, all of that stuff. So I, I think that most people would say, okay, yes, fair enough, Nick, we have this, uh, you know, potential comparative advantage, but, it doesn't seem like we're necessarily taking advantage of that advantage right well, now. Well, no, and, and that's going to be a good point. I want to bring that up, but I want to do so after we go after the next category. So okay. I, I think we've laid out a pretty good argument here that the United States is already is already dominant within the agricultural market, but we could do even better. Yes. And the answer is, why aren't we, right? We're going to get to that, but the next thing I want to go over is, now let's look at energy. So we talked about food being an issue. We talked about energy being an issue. All right. Oil production by country, this surprises people, the most barrels per year is done by the United States. It's not Saudi Arabia no. or it is not Indonesia. Saudi now, again, these, these numbers do change. So, I, I, you know, again, if someone's going to come in and be like, oh, that's actually 2000, that's June of 2021. Okay. But the, the point is, is that most people don't understand that the United States is usually in the top one or two spots with respect to overall oil production. I think a lot of people remember that under Trump, we were energy independent, yeah. at least briefly. So the the thing is, is that we're at a point right now, when you look at our overall production in oil, we're at the top. Now let's look at natural gas by country. All right, natural gas by country. This is 2020. Top countries that produce the most natural gas, the United States, 914.6 billion cubic meters. All right. However, we're also the largest producer, 832 billion. But what that means is that we do have a, we do have um, a, a net, we, we have an export you know, yeah, market that we, yeah. that we can do on that. Now, if you look at the natural gas reserves, Russia goes to the top, right? It has the most known reserves right now. The United States is fifth. That still makes us pretty significant on the overall world market. But again, where is it? Where are the biggest reserves? Russia, Iran, Qatar, and Turkmenistan. They're the ones ahead of us. Turkmenistan. Um, so what I, I'm hearing is Turkmenistan is going to be a, an emerging global power. <laughs> well, again, <laughs> Russia can't get theirs to market right now because of war and sanctions. Iran can't get all of theirs to market right now in part because of sanctions. Yeah. Qatar, you know, can to some degree. They 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 have some potential, um, you know, competitive advantage here. Turkmenistan runs into problems with in, internal infrastructure problems. They're a third problems. world landlocked yeah. country in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so they, they're <laughs> going to rely heavily on pipelines, which they don't have the capacity to actually develop, and they're going to have to rely on other countries to actually want to do this, right? And then you go, and they get the United States, and then you get to China on that with, with known reserves. So once again, the United States is in a position to be able to... to ex- to be able to leverage this. Let's go to the top five coal producing countries because this is another mechanism for getting energy. Now here's what's going to, here's what's going to um, surprise people. The largest producer of, of coal is China and it's not even close. Yeah. Like it's almost, it, it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's multitudes. I, I remember reading somewhere that China constructs a new coal power plant every single week in millions of tons. Here, here's the top five producers. I'm going to read this off for our audience, right? And this is millions of tons. China is 3,942. Million. Million, <laughs> right? Um, India is 767. Indonesia is 550. The United States is 544. So you can see China dwarfs everybody else with respect to, to coal production. But we're still in the top five. We're still in the top five, which means, again, and again, China is using their coal. Yeah. Right? So we're, we're at a position where... We, we we benefit from being able to export a lot of this product. Now, some people might say with the energy, they'll say, well, you know, it, it's still more expensive because, 
you know, you got pipelines over in Europe, whereas we would have to actually ship this, um, you know, overseas, although you can do. Well, I, I think the concern is more in this. Th this goes back to the, the question that I had earlier. Like, I think the concern is, is that we are adopting European style regulations yes. that are making it harder for us to use American energy and harder for us to leverage our own position as an agricultural powerhouse. Yeah. Well, I, I think, again, the goal of this part of the podcast was to demonstrate that the United States is actually in a much better position than I think people think we are. The question is, why aren't we leveraging it? <laughs> and and if you if you look at the policy of the Biden administration, he he honestly has a policy where everyone in the world recognizes that you know what, it is a bad idea to be overly dependent upon countries with dictatorial regimes for us. your oil and natural gas and energy needs. Actually, I, and, and, I, and his strategy has been not to increase the production no, no. of U.S. capacity. It's been to go to the Middle East and say, and please increase Saudis, production. And now he's making overtures to a brutal dictatorship in South America in Venezuela Can to I try add to increase production. Janet Yellen, who's yeah. the Treasury Secretary and used to be chair of the Federal Reserve, yeah. um, she slammed OPEC's decision. Th this was like a few weeks ago. O OPEC, which is the... Um, uh, largest, you know, oil cabal. It's yeah. a collection of companies or, or countries around the world that are massive oil producers, mostly in the Middle East, but not just there. OPEC announced that they were going to be cutting drastically um, oil production in order to increase the price because the price is collapsing right now because the world is slipping into a recession. And when yeah. recessions happen, the price of oil usually tumbles. Yeah. So OPEC is, is cutting production because they want to artificially increase the price. Well, Yellen is slamming OPEC's decision to cut production by saying this is going to slow down economic recovery after COVID. Well, gee, I wonder, you know, <laughs> you might not be able to decide policy in Saudi Arabia, yeah. but guess what, Janet? You're on the cabinet of the president of the United States' <laughs> inner circle. Yeah. Maybe you could tell Joe Biden to increase production here at home. But, yeah. oh, no, 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 we're going we're, we're gonna to impose. This is at the same time. Yeah. It'd be one thing if she was criticizing OPEC's decision while we were trying to ramp up production here. But this is at the same time that Joe Biden is contemplating a total ban on offshore oil drilling here in the United States. Yeah. At the same time that Biden is literally mulling a proposal to make it harder to exploit energy and search for new energy sources here in the United States. They're complaining about the fact that some of these brutal dictatorships, many of which hate the United States, are cutting their own oil production in order to increase the price of oil for us here at home. I'm sorry, but guess what? I don't want to hear you complaining about Saudi Arabia cutting oil. I mean, here, here OPEC is trying to go green. <laughs> And yeah, Janet they are. Yellen, they're trying to go Janet green Yellen, in their bank accounts. And Janet Yellen's all upset about it. No, it, it's now what they're what the automatic like what the knee jerk reaction is, and this is something that our audience you know needs to know because the reaction is exactly that's why we need to invest more in green energy. Green energy represents on a good day twelve percent of U.S. energy consumption. This is the same thing that Germany's finding out. Is like this is all nice and you, you can play make believe all day long. When it's summer in Germany and you can still get your oil and natural gas from Russia. The moment it's winter and you can't, all of a sudden the make-believe goes right out the window as you're having to rescue old people from the German winter. Right? So this is the part where it's like, spare me your garbage, right? If you really, if you really now here's the now here's the other side of the energy component of this. If we increased our production of oil and natural gas. That would bring down the overall price on the world market. Guess who that would hurt the most? Russia. Right? Yeah. It would hurt Russia. You want to hurt Russia while helping you at the US economy and the global economy? Make the United States a more dominant exporter of oil. Then we're not as beholden to OPEC. Then we're not as because here's what'll happen. As soon as the US starts to increase that, OPEC is not going to want to get left in the cold. They'll start increasing their production as well. Like if you want to hurt Russia at the same time that you can help the United States and the global economy increase domestic oil production and refining. That, yeah. That's how you could do it. It would help us. It would hurt Russia. Theoretically, that's what they want to do. But I guess not really. The other thing is the same thing with agricultural production. How would that help? Well, one, we're in a position right now where we could actually leverage with other countries that are becoming more reliant on the United States. We could say, if you want these goods 
then we want you to lower your tariffs against other U.S. goods. Yeah. We could actually help achieve a greater free trade environment by doing this, while at the same time we'd be helping our own domestic agricultural production. But instead, the strategy of the Democratic Party, and, and to some degree Republicans, but primarily Democratic Party, since the 30s has been, no, 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 we're going to subsidize farmers to not produce Seriously, like at, at a time in the 1930s where people were going hungry in this country, FDR's government was literally going, buying up livestock and destroying it. So this, this has been a long strategy right here. And you have to wonder at some point, here we are finding ourselves in a situation where we are uniquely poised to leverage what is going on with a strong U.S. dollar, strong you know, um, uh, markets that the world needs that we're strong and we're all of a sudden major producers have fallen off. We have the ability to fill the gap and we're not doing it. And we're not doing it in part because our government wants to raise taxes. Our government wants to increase regulations. Our government wants more control over the agricultural sector. It wants more control over the energy sector. The, the secret here is, is not hard. You got to reduce taxes. You got to reduce onerous regulations. You got to let Americans be more competitive in the world market. We also have to reduce spending because if we don't yes. reduce spending, and we talked about this in the previous episode, if you don't reduce spending, eventually the Federal Reserve will be forced physically to pivot, yeah. so to speak, and they will have to turn the money printers back on simply to fund the federal government. The minute they do that, the dollar will start tumbling again and our competitive advantage yeah. will begin to evaporate when it comes to that trade imbalance. One question for you, Nick. Has the United States ever been in this position before? Yes. I mean, interestingly enough, um, if you look at the United States post-World War II, there would, now that was, that was much more significant than what we're seeing right now, but there's, there's, there's similarities. First of all, I, I hear people, oh my gosh, I hear people all the time on the left say, well, yeah, we were wealthy in the 50s and 60s because, or in the 50s, we had a 90% marginal tax rate. If you honestly believe that having a 90% tax rate on the wealth is what creates a wealthy country, I, I honestly don't know what to say to you. You should be, like, as soon as you've done that, like, if you went over and started licking a window, I would not be surprised. <laughs> That's how stupid that comment is. Because what it essentially suggests is that, yeah, I guess if Rwanda just had a 90% marginal tax rate tomorrow, they'd be wealthy like we were. No, that's not what creates wealth. There was a... a a lot of things that happened right after World War II that we have to take into consideration. First of all, the United States government, I would say, put us in a position to not even properly leverage what we could have during that time. But what you had post-World War II is every other single major competitor with the United States that had any sort of manufacturing base had been bombed into oblivion, right? China didn't exist as a major economic power at that time. Soviet Union uh, production, yeah, it increased for the war, but they still had you know major problems. They had lost 20 million people. Europe was in absolute shambles. Um, Great Britain was still trying to recover and then immediately adopted socialist policies and, and hamstring their own economic recovery. And in fact, the countries that did the best, and this is something that people don't like to talk about because people think that, oh, what really helped Europe get back on its feet was the Marshall Plan and massive government spending in their economies. Actually, if you look at the countries that went off the Marshall Plan the fastest and tried to get away from the price controls and everything else that came with it, they were the ones that did best. It was countries like West Germany. Now, you, you can make an argument that we were doing that to try to cozy up to them so they didn't go to the Russians, fine, whatever. But the, the thing to remember is that at that particular time in the United States, we, we hadn't been bombed into oblivion. We hadn't fought major battles in U.S. soil. U.S. agricultural and, and manufacturing production was at an all-time high Although, to be fair, that was mostly producing bombs and tanks and guns. But if you think about it, who was it producing those? It was Ford, right? It was Chevy. It was GM. It was major company. It was Singer, right? It, it, was, it was major companies that were able to easily convert. It's not like we set up a bunch of new companies to produce okay. tanks. We had companies that were producing cars and then converted to producing tanks so then, and then had the capacity to, to go right back. The, and then we could dominate the manufacturing and the agricultural markets. So then and, – and, and I – this might sound like that that I'm, you know, taking us off course, but I promise it's not. The question that I've got then is, okay, so we've been here before, yeah. right? You're you're making the argument that in some ways it looks like from a monetary and and slightly from a, a an economic general economic um standpoint that that 
we're in a position that's somewhat similar to the 1940s, well, right? Okay, I, not, I, and I don't mean 1940s in the sense that like the world is, you know, in the middle of a giant it's, it's, war. It's, it's it's very different with respect to how we got here. Of course, the, of course. There's the, some similarities though. The competitive is, advantage yes. component so has similar similarities. The question that I've got then, and I, I know that you've got an answer to this is, well, then how can you not argue that, World War II ended the Great Depression, and that's what allowed the economy to to boom in the late 1940s after the war ended, right? You know, so the United States was in this depression, but then there was this war that happened, and everybody went to work, right? Building all these tanks and planes, and that's what's, you know, pulled the American economy out of the gutter, and then allowed us, when the war ended, to just keep rolling along. So what I'm hearing is, and I'm making this argument facetiously, I don't think any of us actually believe this, but what I'm hearing is, is that we just need to go start a war with somebody. No, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah saying, saying I'm going to get rich off of starting war is saying, like, I'm going to get rich off of robbing a bank, right? Like, yeah, you might, but that doesn't mean it's, a, that doesn't mean it's sound economic policy, right? So same thing over, in, yeah. If you want to end on if you want to end all unemployment tomorrow, just draft everyone in the army and navy. There you go, boom, everyone's employed. You're not going to have anything to eat, but everyone's. So the the thing that you have to look at is you need to be very careful about the figures government uses to try to show economic prowess. So like for instance, governments love to use GDP numbers. Why? Because government spending is included in yeah. GDP numbers. Mm -hmm. You want to increase your GDP overnight? Print trillions of dollars and spend it. Well, look at that. Your GDP went up. Well, no, not in the way that we actually think of, you know, GD, high GDP numbers as being a good indicator of economic prosperity, right? So when I'm, again, let me lay out all this real quick. I'm going to, I'm going to do a summary. Okay. Here's the summary in, in less than five minutes. A lot of the countries that we compete and or cooperate with on the global market are now in a situation where everybody's taken a hit. Everybody's taken a hit because of COVID. Everybody's taken a hit because of the government's response to COVID. They've taken a hit because of in inflationary monetary policy. And they've taken a hit because of the war in Ukraine and, and how that affects oil and gas markets and to a lesser degree agricultural markets. Russia and Ukraine are at a point right now where the things they produce are not getting to market for obvious reasons. They're at war, mm -hmm. right? So because of either sanctions or war, they're not able to get into... EU is in a position right now where they were heavily dependent upon Russia for oil and gas, which means that's causing costs to rise over there, especially when you compare it with their overall environmental and energy policies, which favored green energy at the expense of more traditional energy sources. So that's causing prices to go up across the board, and it's causing real problems and crisis with respect to you know what heating is going to look like once winter hits. Yeah. At the same time, the EU has also adopted policies, which is which is harming their overall uh, agricultural output capacity, right? When you tell the second largest food exporter in the world that 33% of your farms are going to have to be shut down in order to meet our environmental goals, that is going to have a negative impact on food prices within the world market. When you look at China, China might be a huge producer of agricultural products, but they use it for their own consumption and when you look at country, when you look at places like Africa where they have massive natural resources, but they've been largely dependent on on Chinese investment and financing, and now that finance and investment is not going to taking not going to be taking place at the same capacity because they have a huge asset bubble within China. They have a huge problem with central planning. They have a huge problem with malinvestment, and they have a huge problem with inflationary monetary policy. So now, major countries are going to be dependent on overseas investment. They're going to be dependent on oil and gas. And they're going to be dependent upon more agricultural uh, products entering the market in order to lower food costs. Yeah. So let's look at where the United States is strongest right now. We're the largest producer of oil and natural gas. We're, we're the largest exporter of agricultural products. And the U.S. dollar is actually stronger compared to most world currencies. So when it comes to being able to engage in foreign investment, we have an advantage right now in that process. Yeah. So I don't care what continent you go to, the United States is now in a unique position to take advantage of the, the advantages that we have within the marketplace. Despite all our problems. Despite all of our problems. The biggest thing standing in the way right now is our own government because they want to heavily regulate, tax, and subsidize agriculture. Yeah. They want to heavily regulate tax um, energy production, and they want to favor styles which are not efficient over styles which are. And then the one thing, the one thing 
that the Fed has screwed up all the way to this point, but is, is actually starting to get right, is they're taking the inflation out of the economy in the United States faster than central banks are doing it around the world. Well, now, a lot if, of central banks aren't doing it at all. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Yeah. But if they, if they don't continue to do that, if they pivot under political pressure, then we will find ourselves in a situation where all of the, the some of the major competitive advantages that we have in oil and gas, will agriculture, collapse. and the ability to engage in foreign financial investment will collapse because of U.S. government policy. Th th honestly, that is the thing that is really, really scaring me right now is the idea like everybody keeps talking about this, this Fed pivot. Everybody in the markets keeps saying, when's the Fed going to pivot? When's the Fed going to pivot? Because they're they're looking at their portfolios and they're saying like, well, we need the Fed to turn on the money printers that way. Stocks go back up. Yeah, they're going to apply political pressure based off of 401ks what, and portfolios. Well, and, and also I, I, like the collapsing treasury market as well. Like, I, I think it's like treasury bonds are like at a 10 year low or something like that. So like there's all these like political pressures that not just political, but also somewhat economic pressures that are trying, you know, there's, there's so many forces that are, I mean, the freaking UN wants the Fed yeah. to pivot, right? Yeah. If the Fed does that, th that will be checkmate because yeah. if it gets to the point where the Fed physically cannot raise interest rates above what the inflation rate is before cracks start forming in the system and they have to address the collapsing bond market or they have to address the collapsing uh, stock market or whatever it is. Well, I mean, at that point, how will inflation ever go well, away? And, and here's and here's where we here's where we go into what should the U.S. and state governments do at this point. So what they should what we should be learning from this is like, okay, we're not as affected by the war as other people are. Yeah, we're we're, we're our central bank is not performing well, but it's performing better than all the other central banks. Okay, and we have massive capacity for oil gas production as well as agricultural production. Yeah. So the biggest thing that we should be looking at is not the government should not be printing and spending more money like oh okay yeah let's do that. So here's money Exxon and here's money farmer like no that's not what we should be doing. What we should be doing right now is we should look at okay when I look at the total cost of production of these things within the United States I should be looking at how do taxes, regulations, fees, fines, and policy, how did that stand in the way or how does it make our production less competitive on the world market? And we should start We should start taking a hard look on how we actually get rid of that. And then when it comes to investment, wise investment, instead of the government investing your money for you in green energy boondoggles, what they should be doing is saying, we're going to cut capital gains. We're going to cut capital gains. We're not going to punish you for investing. And then what will happen is people will now be assuming risk with their own money, and they're going to see some of the same things that we're talking about right now and realizing competitive advantages change in the world, and we have, we have a huge opportunity right now to take advantage of it. The other thing that we need to be looking at is our, our trade policy. So again, if we want to go toward, again, we should be moving toward freer trade. If we have the ability to produce what these countries want, that is a great time to renegotiate trade deals. So lower the taxes, get rid of taxes on investment, get rid of taxes on capital investment. This is one of the dumbest things. There's five states that have receipt taxes. We're one of them in Virginia. And what that means is, is that if you want to start a business, if you want to, if you want to get into agriculture, we're going to tax you on the equipment before you ever make a profit. But then we're going to come around and we're going to let you do tax write-offs on the same equipment. We create this contradictory system of, of taxing and then subsidizing. And in each one, you would think, oh, these cancel each other out. No, no they don't. It just they keeps don't, people out of the process. They don't cancel each other out because there's costs associated to doing both of these things. Because before I can tax it, I got to hire people to go get your taxes. Not to mention the fact that I dissuade you from wanting to do it if you don't know you're, you're going to be able to make profit fast enough to overcome the, the cost of the taxes for the capital investment. But then if I subsidize you, uh, well, again, I have to hire somebody else to handle the subsidization. So I hired one person to take the money from you. I hire another person to give you the money over here. right? And in the same token, you're now having to go through this balancing act of what actually makes sense for you financially. Whereas if that whole process wasn't there, opportunity costs would not be lost. If there weren't a whole bunch of random pieces of paperwork, we were talking about this before oh the gosh. show, right? Yeah. If if there weren't all these different pieces of red tape, right? Um, there there'd be a lot more people that would start businesses. Yeah. I I I think it was the founder of Home Depot who said a few years ago that um, if I tried to make Home Depot today, I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Um, and and 
I, I, that is definitely something. Honestly, that might be down well, the road, and, the topic and, for a whole podcast. And the one honest. thing I wish we could get the left to agree with us on, and and but they don't. They like to claim that they do. Yeah. But it's cronyism. Right? Oh, I they definitely don't. Re- Republicans are guilty of cronyism. Yes. Just, but so are Democrats. In some like, cases, Democrats are worse yes. on cronyism. And the reason why is because Democrats have no principles when it comes to the free market. Yeah. They don't care about the free market. And so like for them, it's just, oh, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Because yeah. there's no there's no moral objective, at least for some Republicans, it's an act of hypocrisy yeah. when they engage in cronyism. Because in theory, the right believes in free markets yeah. and cronyism runs contrary to that. But the left doesn't believe in free markets. Yeah. So somebody comes along and has some some here's a good example the amazon uh subsidy that virginia did where where yeah. amazon said we want to build a second headquarters in northern virginia and it was a bipartisan vote for it but there were plenty of democrats that voted for it because quite frankly they didn't have any objections to it because there was no concern of oh this isn't good for the free market because they don't care about the free yeah. market a lot of Republicans voted for it because they're hypocritical on it, but a lot of Democrats well, voted for it because they didn't have any any problem with it in the first well, place. Well, because they like they like the idea of tax revenue. Yeah. Right. And and Republicans were like, oh, this is good for business. Like, no, it's good for that business. Yeah. It's not good for all the other businesses that you dumped off the tax responsibilities to. Right? It's it's not good for the businesses that don't have the capacity to lobby you the way Amazon does. Yeah. Um so the good news is the good news is, is that we really are in a position where we can we can just totally take advantage of American competitive advantage in the marketplace. The bad news is is that we currently have an administration and a Congress that will do everything they can to make sure that we don't actually do it because their agenda, whether it be environmental policy, whether it be energy policy, um, whether it be their view of the economy and, and how you achieve success, runs contrary to what most people would look at. If, if you just took the politics aside and you said, are you more likely to start a business if I raise your taxes or lower them? Are, are you more likely to start a business if I increase your regulations or you lower them? Now, the other side might say, well, those taxes are going to build the roads that allow you to get... I, I'm sorry. We, we all understand the importance of the infrastructure. But if you're telling me that that's why you want to do this taxes, okay, great. Let's only levy taxes that is necessary to do the infrastructure. Do you still want it? No, that's where all of a sudden they you realize that yeah. they've got a whole other agenda that they're trying to finance. And infrastructure is the excuse they're using to raise the taxes, even though that's not where a majority of the money is going to go to. So let's let's leverage these advantages that we have. Let's let's put in government policy. And, and this is the beautiful thing. What the government has to do is get out of the way. <laughs> that's it. Right. And and the problem is, is for so many elected officials, that's not sexy enough. That doesn't get their name on a friggin' building. And they they can't run on, I got out of the way. Instead I got out of the way. They want to run on, I did something. Yes. It, mm-hmm. It's like, we we I, we voted to spend this much money on this. Oh, did it work? Oh, well, we're not sure. But we spent the money. <laughs> that's, what, that's how you know we care, and they don't. They didn't want to spend the money. No, just get out of the way and let millions of Americans who are far more intelligent than their political representatives give them credit for Find the ways to produce the goods and services within a competitive environment to not only benefit the United States, but to benefit all the benefit all the people that desperately want to buy these products and can't get them from the places they're used to getting them from. It's that simple, right? There's a lot of complexity with respect to making it all happen, but from the government's perspective, it's that simple. Get out of the way, and you'll you'll actually see the United States come out of this even stronger than we went into it. Because it will have provided us an opportunity to develop resources that we have within the United States. It will, it will give us the, the additional capital to be able to invest in things like nuclear energy to make ourselves more resilient to the global market with respect to energy supply on things that we're currently dependent upon oil or coal or natural gas for. It will put us in a position where the United States economy will be able to leverage this additional trade. It will put us in a better position to negotiate trade deals, to get freer trade, and to open up foreign markets to U.S. goods and services. It will put us in a position where the the excess or or the the increased um, investment and and productivity within the United States will actually increase more tax revenue for all the politicians that want to spend it. Personally, I'd rather just give it back and let it go back into the economy. But even if you're on the left and you're like, well, we want taxes. for the- Okay, great. 
increase productive capacity in the United States at a critical point, and you'll get what you want too. Yep. But you're not going to get it by demonizing the very industries that we need right now to be freed from the shackles of government taxation and regulation so that they can compete in a world market that desperately needs what they got. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, once again, thank you for joining us. I know I think we went a little bit long on this episode. Every time we get into economics, just trust that Christian and I are going to go longer than we're actually supposed to. Um, because we, we do. We, we find these issues fascinating. We don't just find them fascinating because we like the numbers or, or understanding. We like it because at the, end of at the end of every economic policy are people. And they're people yep. trying to make their lives better, trying to make their family lives better, trying to make their communities' lives better. And the study of economics really ultimately at the end of the day is about how do we how do we free people to be able to use their talents and their gifts to maximum effect within the economy, not only for their benefit, but for the benefit that they're engaging in transactions with. It is voluntary, it is peaceful, it is productive, and it is something that we should all be passionate about. Once again, thank you for joining us. Also, check out our Volley Chat. Again, what is Volley Chat? Volley Chat is your ability to be a part of the Making the Argument community where you get to engage either through text or through videos. And we get to have more of an in-depth, back-and-forth conversation. And like I said, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on this podcast in the last couple of months since we set up Volley yeah. has been a direct result of people on Volley giving us ideas, um, asking us questions and saying, hey, this is this is what we're interested in. So if you want to have some influence on our topics, Volley Chat is one of the best ways to do it. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.